0: Of the Autism Podcast, produced by the London Autism Group charity. Today's episode is an edited version of a recent live stream interview that James and I did with sensory specialists Joe Grace and Becky Liddon, who run the Sensory Projects and Sensory Spectacle, respectively. During the live stream, Joe and Becky answered a range of different audience questions, which led to an in-depth and fascinating discussion around the sensory world, in particular. On the differences between sensory impairment and sensory difficulties, the connections between toileting issues and sensory processing, including the role of interoception, and also the connection between eating. And sensory processing. We also got their advice as to how to cope better during the COVID 19 situation. Before I kick off the episode, I just wanted to mention that our charity is actively looking for volunteers. So if you have some time and interest in supporting the autistic and wider autism community, do get in touch with us via one of our social media channels or email. Our email address is contact at londonautismgroupcharity.org. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast and you found it useful, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts, as they really help us a lot in expanding our audience. Okay, now over to the episode. We hope you enjoy. Hey, so we are live again for our weekly uh, London Autism Group Charity uh, live stream that we've been doing in particular focus on mental health and well-being and coping during the the current COVID-19 crisis that we have, which is obviously presenting a wide range of challenges for the autistic and wider autism community. So it's really great to have various experts on to talk through their and share their expertise and this week we have two phenomenal experts in the shape of joe grace and becky Leiden. thanks both of you for coming on and obviously you two have oh and by the way hello james how are you doing today
1: yeah. okay thank you
0: yeah good totally good well. Um, so, you two have a particular expertise in the sort of sensory world or sensory experience. And um, before we sort of get into the discussion about sensory processing difficulties and, and different types of sensory experiences and processing, perhaps we could maybe hear a little bit about the work that you do and your background.
2: Yeah. So, hi, I'm Jo Grace. I run a thing called the Sensory Projects and they're all about sharing the knowledge and the creativity to use inexpensive things as effective sensory resources. I have a a background in special education um, and I have a background in inclusion that's, well, I have family members who have physical disabilities and neurodivergent conditions and I, I first worked as a support worker for somebody when I was 13. And since running the projects, I get to work with people. I think my youngest was a day old and my oldest is currently 85. So I get a good scope in there. And there's lists of things like this. I was a registered foster carer, so I've got a little sort of flat version of things. And I suppose one of the relevant things for tonight is that I'm autistic myself. So I come at this from a bit of personal experience too.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you so much, Joe.
2: Uh, Becky,
3: would you like Hello. to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Becky. I um, I teach about sensory processing difficulties. I'm the founder of Sensory Spectacle. Um, I'm I'm not from this world kind of at all. Well, I'm from this world, but um, I'm originally a graphic designer, and I I kind of fell into this um, special education autism experience side of things after I graduated from uni and realized I didn't want to sit at an office desk being a graphic designer Um, and so I was a play worker, short breaks worker and it was in that job that I became more interested in the way we were supporting the children and young people, but also we didn't have very much training ourselves. And I wanted to understand things better so I could support the the children better. And so I kind of took it upon myself to learn more. And so I did a master's in art, art and science and specifically looked at the autistic sensory world. That's when I started to work with children and adults with SPD and create immersive learning environments.
0: And so, do, have you to collaborated before, or or anything like that? Have you linked up before, or
3: <laughs> I mean, we're practically neighbours. <laughs> um, oh, right. I, I, I'm originally from Devon, um, and it just so happened when I was relatively new at starting all of this. Um, We seem to be at similar events. And so we saw each other a lot. Um, And so, yeah, we do know each other quite well. Um, Jo's a good friend. And it's just nice to be able to be on something together.
0: Uh, We've got here a comment from Jay Blues. Uh, She says that she's done one of your Bubbles activities. I think she's talking to you, Becky, right?
3: Probably. (laughs) I've been doing activity sessions
2: during kind of this COVID on Mondays and Thursdays on Facebook. I'm just seeing her second question there. SPD stands for sensory processing disorder. But we're also talking about sensory processing difficulties. And I think it's useful to understand a distinction there, because there's been research done into sensory processing disorder that shows physiological differences in the brains of people who have the disorder but there are also a, a good pop you know a b- big number of people who just have sensory processing difficulties and if you have difficulties then you can practice skills and you can maybe um help your brain to overcome those difficulties whereas if you have a disorder that is a physical difference in your brain no amount of practice is going to overcome that i mean it's not so cut and dry because the brain is such a neuroplastic thing But it's worth knowing. That there's probably two distinct groups of people who get muddled in that one category of SPD. That's where it then becomes quite tricky mm. in say schools for
3: example where um, maybe an OT or a, another professional will support that student and um, maybe not be so aware of the differences between between the two and the way that you know we can we can provide support in a in a kind of adapted way. Um,
0: i mean this is one of the things i wanted to talk to you about the whole sort of difference between disorder and difficulties or differences even because obviously you know nobody experiences you know sensations uh, in any one single way everybody's experiences things differently right obviously there are some sort of shared similarities but everybody experiences things differently and I suppose I'm wondering, when does it sort of cross the threshold to disorder, let's say? Is, I mean, it's sort of you alluded to it in terms of some, a physiological, as a I physiological it's phenomenon.
2: Right. I it's, uh, it's, um, it wouldn't be that you were looking for like a level of response. Two children could have the same response to not liking to touch wet things or not tolerating um labels in their clothing and the level of response there wouldn't indicate whether it was a disorder or a difficulty. What I would look for is how they respond to activities that you try to in order to support that. So um, if you were somebody who struggles with touching wet sticky things then all of the amazing activities that Becky's been putting out on her social media through lockdown, lots of those ones that involve touching sticky things, you might find that with a bit of practice, you get so that you are more able to tolerate that. If you've got a physical difference in your brain, you're not going to get so that you're more able to tolerate. So you would be looking at their response and being reflective of that.
3: And over time, it would then be thinking about, you know, how's it impacting their quality of life? And how can you then put certain little strategies in place to help someone be able to have a shower or to have a bath if they really find the feeling of water overwhelming or, or, or whatever it might be.
0: Right and um, we've got some qu- thank you for that by the way uh, we've got some questions coming in which is great keep them coming in so I'll start with I suppose we'll go in chronological order. Uh, Harshita Patel does SPD change and heighten in puberty?
3: Um, so I think if we think about hormones in general and how hormones affect our bodies and and changes I think you're likely to notice changes in the way that someone's responding to their sensory environment however like Joe's just kind of mentioned if we're talking about sensory processing disorder that that impact is there and so it may well not Be more heightened during puberty, but you may notice different responses because of maybe other other things that their body is going through and changes, and um the way that maybe they're trying to understand what's what's happening as well.
0: So different interactions almost with with the hormonal changes as opposed to increases. Yeah,
3: I mean, I I, I wouldn't say that there's going to be definite changes during puberty. Mm. However, because of everything else that's changing in our bodies, there's probably going to be more of a need for that person to feel in control. And so therefore, they may well be displaying that. No, I I need to keep this fidget with me because actually that's the one thing that I can manage and control and, and feel kind of okay with. Um, yeah, so I
0: suppose also there's all the sort of um, additional or different social pressures that come along with being a teenager, right, and, and, and change, you know, g- coming into that age that might perhaps, you know, increase anxiety or, or, you know, stress or whatever it is. And then that perhaps presumably also interplays with ch- the, sen- you know, challenges to do with sensory processing and, and how that's leveraged to cope. Yeah, Does I mean, you if you agree with that?
3: About all of us, when when we feel a bit anxious or nervous about something, you'll notice. I think you were saying right at the beginning, you know, we're all we're all sensory, and so if I'm feeling a bit nervous, I might start fiddling with my nails or you know, biting my nails or fidgeting with something. And so, if you think, if if I in my daily routine find it really difficult to regulate the sound that's going on around me, if that's if that's going to be changing for, for whatever reason, I'm going to want to feel more in control of that. So it may well be that I cover my ears for longer or that I start to speak a bit louder or listen to my favourite music a lot more of the time.
0: Right. Uh, thank you for that. Jo, Did you want to add something? Sorry.
2: Only just commenting on the other sort of changes that go on in the teenage brain. So some of those would stop you accessing your previous support strategies the way that our language alters during our teenage years the grunting that is sort of you know famous for the kevin the teenager is a product of those alterations in the brain and also your teenage years are a period in your life when you most viscerally experience the world so especially as you hit puberty so depending on whether you do that some some young people will hit that in before their teenage years, and some young people will be within their teenage years. But those moments, I'm I'm just thinking of, um, I, I get to work sometimes with people with later stage dementia, because once they lose their capacity with language, their world becomes a sensory one, and the sensory conversations and strategies that I might use with somebody with a profound disability become relevant. And when I'm looking for sensory points of connection with them, often some of the best ones are the sensory experiences from their teenage years because they registered so profoundly on the brain at that time. So if you are having that more visceral experience of the world, then it's likely that that would play into your sensory processing differences or difficulties.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you, Joe. Um, Harshit has just added, um, he now wears headphones and is extra sensitive with showers. I think, I, th- I suppose she's sort of perhaps saying indicating that he's entering puberty or is is in early stages of puberty perhaps and and now this change has, has happened so I suppose that reflects you know what you've been talking about
3: yeah and and I think just throughout our lives you're going to notice changes anyway I talk to a lot of teachers and they say oh well they've stopped doing that now but now they're doing this and actually if you if you break it down if you look at what I refer to something called a sensory characteristic, so the thing that they're doing, um, so chewing on something, for example, it's actually working out well, what's the sensory purpose behind them doing that um, because this new thing that they're doing may well be for the same sensory purpose. Um, and so wearing headphones, like I was saying, that might be his, his comfort. That might be his thing of, you know, I, I feel secure now because I've got something that, that's here that's helping me. Um becoming more sensitive with showers could be lots of different sensory aspects and it could also be anything that may have changed within that environment as well, um, as well as you know, weather changes and, and things that we can't necessarily control.
0: Okay, great, thank you. So we've got an interesting question here from uh Nadia Jallard. Uh my son is not intolerant of things but seeks Uh, sensory things such as hitting things to get the sensory feedback anything that makes a noise he's for
3: so this is a really good example of kind of what I was just saying um so hitting things we can break that down into a lot of kind of different aspects yes it might be noise um it might be the physical feeling so that body feedback that you're getting when, when you're hitting something it could be the tactile experience it could be the visual. So it might be the fact that they're watching their hand as it's moving, as it's hitting and something, and maybe then the response, the cause and effect from that. So um, as a parent, if it is the noise, she's aware that you know it's because he's getting that response for the sound, then it may well be that she's started to notice he's hitting lots of different things for a specific noise rather than um, maybe hitting the same part of a wall because of that particular body feedback. That he's getting he's 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 looking she said he's seeking um he's looking for sensory input however actually if it's that proprioceptive input, if that body awareness mm-hmm. input then actually what he's doing is something to try and help him feel where his body is just maybe while he's sitting eating his dinner while he's doing an activity he might be noticing that he's hitting something at the same time um and that can be a way that he's supporting himself to be regulated but he he is very
2: young as well Um, and children like to hit things. It's a nice point you just made because we were saying about working out what sensory input something is providing so that that's making a sound or it's providing a pressure against the body but you just you just mentioned when he's doing it Um, and so I I was thinking um, when I was younger so I had some sensory differences Um, I used to do things that would have looked strange so one of the things that I did was I would repeatedly squint into the sunshine and the effect that that had for me was I could see the little shards of light through my eyelashes and it went all rainbowy but I only did that at playtime when I was in a situation where lots of other children were moving around and playing in an unstructured way that I didn't understand if I'd been outside doing an activity with my class where I understood you know, what I was doing now and what I was doing next, I wouldn't have been doing that because I would have understood how to be in that current situation.
1: Yeah, I, I did much the same thing actually, Joe, when whenever I got bored and I I used to, I don't know, be sent to my room for a lay down, the sun would come in my window and I would do exactly the same thing and it would just pass the time, it. yeah.
0: Uh, thanks for that so we've got a question here from sakina can you advise please advise on the common sensory difficulties when toilet training children
2: joe
3: did you want to say something always oh, but I, you could talk to <laughs> I, I was i was just going to say i've actually just put out quite a lot of, of, of work about toilet training i've just done a new online training specifically ah. for this um because it, it's a whole, it, it's pretty much all of our senses. And so really, you need to look at other sensory aspects if they think it's sensory related. Um, so for example, it could be their vestibular sense, it could be the fact that they find it difficult to actually balance on a toilet when they're put on it, maybe going from a potty to a toilet can be a big change, because actually, when you're on a potty, your feet are firmly on the ground, whereas when, when you're on a toilet, you're not necessarily balanced as well. Um it could be, you know the smell of the environment the feel of the toilet seat it could be the fit the ability to um wipe themselves clean themselves or the fact that they like how they feel when when they're wet or when they've soiled themselves um however ultimately it could also be the fact that they're finding it difficult to recognize that internal message so our interoceptive messages telling us you know when we actually need to go to the toilet and I think Jo is probably going to talk a little bit about that more (laughs) because
2: that's what she was gonna yeah you're right when I saw that one pop up that's what I thought I think interception is the most interesting sense here and we're mostly taught at school that we have five senses um Becky and I both run to a good deal more than that on the on the sensory spectacle and the sensory projects. Um I I get into Twitter chats with people who are going, Do you know there's eleven senses? Do you know there's technically there's thirty three, so you know, wow. so we just to eight or nine is a good number at the moment. But our interceptive sense is one of the most interesting senses that we've been learning about through research recently the research into interception is all very new it's all stuff with a 2000 date on it but it is unique amongst the senses in that it's our only sense that is about sensing our internal world all of our other senses are about sensing our external world and your interception it tells you how you feel and it's a very strange one to have an impairment with because you would think that people know how they feel because they feel it. Um, and so if you can't feel that you need to go to the toilet, then that's obviously going to affect your ability to respond to toilet training. And there are um, Becky's work, and um, it's worth saying about Kelly Mailer's work as well, isn't it there? Mm-hmm. Uh, that information is out there to support you if that's what you're facing with your child. But it's, it's. I think if you do think something's going on there, it's worth thinking about the other effects that an impairment to your interception can have. And so like if you were um, partially sighted or if you you had problems hearing, that would be very obvious to the world around you. You would get noticed for having those impairments. If you have an impairment to your interception, you won't necessarily know about it yourself because it's not that you don't have feelings. We need two words. You have the feelings, you just don't have the thing that feels your feelings or you're feeling your feelings a bit. And I have impaired interception, so I will only notice an emotion once it's got really big. Most of the time, if you ask me how I feel, I don't really know. And to be quite honest with you, I don't really care because it's not relevant to my life. I'm busy doing other things and not playing on an emotional roller coaster. But it is a risk factor to me because if you were somebody with, you know, like the visual equivalent, the 2020 interception. Then you would spot when you were getting a bit stressed. You might recognize what environment it was, you know, that it was that particular person that was making you a bit stressed because you began to feel a bit stressed when you were around them. You would communicate that whilst the emotion was small, whereas I'll only notice one catastrophic and I've
3: got no clue what caused it. Just adding in that our, our interoceptive sense doesn't just help us to recognize that feeling so i'm feeling hungry for example it's also helping us to understand emotional states as well so you know like what joe was saying if someone said to her oh you seem really angry she doesn't recognize that for example maybe until it's that real kind of heightened state and then it's like ah i'm angry why didn't i I recognize this, this earlier or why didn't i you know, feel that sensation. Yeah. So when I
2: first lived with my husband, he would come in from work and say, "How are you doing? How are you feeling?" And I'd like, "Why? Why are you asking me such a hard question?" <laughs> and we've switched it around now. He comes in from work and he tells me how I'm feeling because he can see it, and that's really useful because he'll say, "Oh, you're a bit tired, you're a bit stressed." You're like, "Am I? Oh!"
1: <laughs>
2: Should do something about that. It's very handy to know. You never think to tell somebody how they're feeling, but actually if you are somebody's parent, you're very likely to be right. Your instincts about your children are pretty much all the time right. And so it can be useful to tell people and to tell people how you know. You mean my shoulders are high, my face looks in a different way. If he could teach me the signals that he sees on me, you know, I can see that your face is looking angry. I can see that your shoulders are up here. And I could visually recognise them. I could look in a mirror and go, oh, you know, that's how I'm feeling. Then I could make those adjustments that would mean I wouldn't have to wait until I get to some big peak.
1: Um, oh, sorry, I don't want to jump in about this because um, toileting is a really common question we get on the Facebook group as well. And uh, my experience with my son was exactly very similar to what Joe was describing, and he obviously has this interception You know, there's a big delay in uh, him actually feeling it, wanting to go to the toilet, and it would get to a, a stage where he'd just stand up and he'd panic, and he'd already gone. You know, and it it took a long, long time, uh, but to get him toilet trained, it took until he was eight. How I've done that is I've, I've basically recognised his body language, so I know to keep an eye on him all the time and then um, if i see him stand up and suddenly start flapping his arms on the spot i know that he suddenly realized that he needs to go badly you know i started leading him to the toilet and showing him and um once he got used to that now he'll come and, and try to tell me by flapping his arms at me he'll come and find me but it's taken uh about three years of that process but now it works you know it, and and it was useful to know about that when it was when the information was coming out about interoception.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So some of the difficulties with interoception and you know toileting are uh, maybe someone finds it difficult to even just recognise a sensation. And so when you're toilet training, you then all of a sudden recognise you need to go to the toilet. You need to go to the toilet then. And so for that person, if they're in school and they can't go to the toilet when they request to because they're in a lesson, or, you know, it's not possible for someone to take them to the toilet at that moment in time, then that's going to impact them and, you know, their ability to associate that feeling of needing to go to the toilet with actually going to the toilet. And then there's the other side where some people will recognise, even with maybe the tiniest of sensations, they might feel like they almost constantly need to go to the toilet, because when they have a drink, they might then feel like they need to go and so that feeling of constantly wanting to go to the toilet can also be really difficult to then understand for someone if they're constantly feeling something down here and it's not hunger and it's not um you know a little bit of nerves and their belly grumbling or whatever might be a similar feeling for them but it's actually the fact that they need to go to the toilet again so for each person it's very very different and like joe said the parents know best I think James has just given a really good example. You'll be able to see with your child what they're doing when it seems like they might need to go. And it's following their lead and it's it's talking about emotions. It's talking about, oh, you look like you need to go to the toilet or you look a little bit anxious or you look a little bit stressed. And helping them to recognize um, the way that they might be feeling or presenting themselves is one of the best ways that we can then start to support that internal awareness.
0: So, so obviously, so it's really key. Then, are you saying for parents and and people around to communicate what they're observing in terms of how someone Aww. aims, in terms of their emotional health, or and so forth, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs> no, go for it, Joe. So we could probably say it at the same time, in, <laughs> um, one of the analogies that gets used a lot is of a fuel gauge in a car. So if you have a working interceptive system, you can constantly monitor where your emotions are at. If you have a working fuel gauge in a car, you constantly can monitor how much fuel is in the car. If you've got a working fuel gauge, you're very unlikely to run out of petrol if you haven't got a working fuel gauge, you need to work, you need to come up with a workaround. So that's maybe counting how many miles you've gone or using a dipstick. And if you habituate yourself to do that, then you are less likely to run out of petrol. But quite likely, you will still run out of petrol. So for somebody like me, and I am such a bad slash good example because i can tell you this stuff and i don't do it you know the person who's got the broken fuel gauge should be every t- morning when they go out and drive their car they should be putting the dipstick in to check their emotions i should every time i go to the toilet look in the mirror and do a kind of visual check and i do not um but if you can Cue us into those markers and say, "This is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that your your muscles are tense, that your face is like this." Then you can give us that information, and and it's definitely a useful thing.
0: It's probably particularly useful uh, uh, to to support yourself or to to get support with this in the current climate that we're in, right? In in the COVID 19 climate, given how you know, yeah our um, stress three-star. levels are. Can I jump in? Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: One of the other things that's very useful for knowing is it um, how hungry you are and that kind of thing because um, I, um, I know my son can't tell if he's hungry or not because he eats and eats and eats, and then he'll get constipated and he'll still eat, so I have to control his, his diet for the sake of his weight and his health, everything like that, but I can see the um, – usefulness of knowing that in in the current lockdown and because it's all to do with self-care isn't it and when when to know when to self-care and that kind of thing and having that awareness
3: yeah all, all of those kind of daily living things that we rely on we we need our interoceptive sense for so eating sleeping toileting the things that that we do and don't necessarily always second think about but the well-being side of that is in this current climate, lots of things have changed, lots of routines have changed. And so, you know, to begin with, it might have felt like for a lot of children and young people that, oh, I'm on holiday. But then when there's an aspect of maybe needing to learn while I'm at home, that's a different routine to be in. And so how do I then recognise how my body is feeling when I'm also trying to understand being in a new routine and almost trying to question, well, why is mum at home if usually I'm at school and I don't normally see mum in the holidays because i working and dad's at home or whatever it is all of these changes aren't necessarily explained and so then it can be really confusing for someone trying to understand that let alone then also trying to support their sensory well-being at the same time.
0: Yeah absolutely and just in a general additional point, it kind of makes me think, you know, reinforces the point, uh, the and the importance of just open communication uh, and how effective that can be you know, in terms of family support and uh, the importance of just t- talking openly about mental health as well, you know, destigmatizing it. That's going to have a big impact, I presume, in this in this kind of area. But it also makes me think how difficult isolated people must be as well, you know, who don't perhaps have that, you know, that support that's going to be so useful in handling general stresses and how that plays into introception issues, but particularly during the COVID-19 crisis, as you were saying, Becky, with the, the sort of additional risk factors that brings into it. Really interesting stuff. We have a question here from S- Sakina. I feel my son chooses not to urinate when he is in the toilet. As soon as he is out of the toilet, he wets himself. Today I noticed, I noted that he no longer can hold it when he pees for a few seconds in the toilet and then again, he holds his bladder. When this happens, I'm not sure whether to reward him or not as it's an overflow
2: so i'd be interested to know if he's happy to pee elsewhere when i was watching that question come up so becky was saying about that it could be the environment of the bathroom and if you're somebody who's sensitive to smell um then that can be a particularly challenging sense to be sensitive to because it's the only sense processed by your limbic brain all of your other senses are processed by your thalamus, which is your thinking brain, and your sense of smell is processed by your limbic brain, which is your emotional brain. So if you struggle with smells, it's sort of a particularly emotional struggle. And bathrooms do smell very different to other rooms in the house. So if he's if he's happy to sort of we in the corner or we on the carpet or we in the mm-hmm. garden, then that would make me think along those lines. But she also says that he holds it and just lets a little bit out and so I was also wondering about interception maybe you can feel that he needs to go to the toilet when his bladder is really really full and when it's not really full he considers that that's a job done and he doesn't know that he has to keep on weeing and if it was something like that you might be able to build in a, a social story to say you have to keep weeing until your wing stops Or you might be able to do it. I I was slightly tempted by doing a play option, you know, especially if it's a little boy because you can put things down the toilet to wee on, can't you? Um, But then there's a risk that um, depending on how your understanding is going to develop, you don't want to use the strategy now that then becomes a strategy you can't use when they're older. So Mm. you you would make a judgment on that one.
1: Um, Can I also add, when I was little, I was... I was very sens- sensory as well. I remember having um, a fear of the noise. There was a fan, uh, sort of air conditioning fan, and that sort of threw me off for a number of years. I, I was scared to go in that in the bathroom, but I could use the toilet downstairs. But also the, the noise of the flushes as well, if it was a particularly loud flush, then I would even into my teens, I would... I would flush and then run out of there without knowing what I was doing and then only when I got a lot older did I realize what I was doing and say what am I doing you know but it was just sort of built into me to do that from you know from the habit of that
2: yeah it's a bit um it's sharing too much information but I learned to pee entirely silently (laughs) which is a skill this is where we were kind of saying you know
3: the the life stuff that we have to do involves apparently more of our senses more obvious how many more of our senses it could be related to mm. so it could be the temperature of the toilet it could be the fact that maybe you know when he stands to go to the toilet in some toilets it's okay mm. but other toilets it, it's you know maybe he needs to be a bit higher whatever you know there's so many different elements mm. to it and we've had noise we've had um the the, the sound it it could be the visual there's pretty much every sensory aspect that it could be um so if if she's not sure then it's about looking at what other things that he does throughout his kind of daily routine which might also give her a clue as to why maybe he finds it difficult to go into the toilet yeah. um, and then going back to thinking about, well also it could be the fact that everything he requires internally needs to be at a really mm. high impact. So it needs a lot of sensation before he even recognizes it. And it's only then when he recognizes it that he knows, ah, I need to go to the toilet. And when he goes to the toilet, he might not then feel comfortable when he fully goes to the toilet because then it might feel like there's absolutely nothing to feel. So that's just wrong. That's strange Um, because he, he feels better when actually he can feel more of that pressure or sensation?
1: It, sorry, if, if there is sort of a negative feeling built up, up over it, however long it takes, if it takes a long time for toilet training, the way I broke my son out of that was actually to take him out of the home and, and try in different toilets outside. He actually did his first wee in a toilet in um, a brand new supermarket, which had a lovely, you know, a, a proper a children's toilet. And once he did it there, then he came home and did it. And, I, I, and that was also good for me as well, for my sort of stopping my my anxiety and that kind of thing, and making me more determined to make it, you know sh- show him how to go at home. So um, yeah,
0: it can be so tough on parents, can't it? I mean, on 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 everybody, uh, of course. But but just sort of the, the sort of anxiety of the unknown, tr- you know, struggling to figure out the solutions or the way forward. But then when you figure things out, you're creative and you get you get progress. It can be presumably very rewarding, right? As you were saying, James. But yeah. kudos to you for being creative and 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 figuring it out, you know, um, making progress. But you know, it must be it must be tough often to to work through the um, the anxieties associated with the unknowns and the challenges, which is why you know it's great to seek support, get advice from people like you guys. Um, so we've got another question from uh, Cluck Candy, uh, who's asking: Can it be can sensory processing difficulties? Uh, be related to food and my son will only eat uh, certain food so food's a whole nother topic isn't it
3: <laughs> well it ties in again with interoception but also yeah. it ties in with all of the senses it could be the sound of the food when they crunch it it could be the visual look it could be the texture of it it could be the smell of it it could be the taste of it it really can be any sensory system and I am on all my workshops like I get asked this question pretty much every time and I'm given a list of foods that people eat. Um, But I I actually encourage them to, again, look at the other things in their lifestyle that they might need to regulate. So, for example, if someone um, seeks out sound throughout their daily life, so they might repeat things they might hum they might sing and um, maybe they're eating dry crunchy foods because actually that auditory input is supportive for them and they're getting that while while they're eating or it might be the texture of it and you know they, they chew or they feel things or they like to get mucky and messy and that's due to a similar kind of tactile input so you can usually look at food choices as well if you look at their other kind of daily routines
2: and and ways that they're supporting themselves regulating themselves eating is a massive one because it's such an easy one for tension to build up around you know toileting is another big one because parents obviously are very concerned that their child learns to use the toilet for all the obvious reasons but with toileting you have got a workaround if your child hasn't learned to use the toilet You can put them in nappies. With eating, you have no choice. If your child doesn't eat, they die. So it's very important to parents and to anybody who cares about those children that they eat. And if you're somebody who struggles with your sensory world, you know, if you're somebody who struggles with touching sticky things if I were to ask you to touch something sticky you would touch it as far away from your body as you possibly could you know you would you would keep all of yourself away from it and you would extend that finger and you'd just touch it yeah just a little bit and when I ask you to eat I'm not only asking you to touch that sticky wet stuff with a finger I'm asking you to touch it with something that has way more nerve endings and I'm not asking you to touch it at a distance from yourself I'm not even asking you to touch it really close to yourself I'm literally asking you to touch it in your face it's so invasive and at the same time I'm also asking you to deal with sound and when we we don't hear the noise of our own mastication because we've learned to tune it out it's not because we don't hear it you know your mouth is right by your ear of course you hear it but our brain filters it out and if i were to you know if i were to had a proper microphone and i crunch something down the microphone to you you would hear all of their horrible noises so if you're somebody who struggles with sound again not only am i asking you to listen to those noises not just close up in your face, if you struggle with taste in your face, and if you struggle with smell, which is so emotional, again, in your face. And I'm asking you to do all of those things all at the same time, all in your face. It's terrifying. And it gets even more terrifying for those people because ordinarily, when you struggle to touch the wet thing or when you struggle with the loud noise in the environment, there will be one person who protects you from it. So ordinarily, you're at the party and it gets too loud for you and your mum or your dad or whoever it is will take you out of that environment, will offer you the headphones, will be your comfort, your rescuer. And in this situation, they're the person that does it to you. And so it's terrifying because you're on your own in that situation. You have all that sensory stuff going on and you have no way to cope. And so it's very natural that people develop a panic reaction around food and around anything that looks like food, you know, the table, the knives and forks, all of this. And so, again, Becky's sort of play approach to things which is there in all of her wonderful videos online is the way to do it if I was to try and support a child who was struggling with their eating in a sensory way I wouldn't do it anywhere near a meal time I wouldn't begin with using food nothing that gives them a clue that that's what I was onto. to and I would work on developing those different things so can we touch sticky stuff and actually touching it with your hands first is a stepping stone to being able to cope with it in your mouth can I listen to those noises I mean it sounds deaf but you know YouTube has sound effects for everything doesn't it can I play you the noise of somebody crunching an apple or slurping a drink whilst you're playing your favorite computer game. So you're in a position where you're relaxed. Can we practice all those little bits one at a time before we ask you to do it all at once? And let's do it, you know, somewhere that is totally not related to that very pressurized environment of eating. But of course, as you do that, they do still need to eat. And so whatever the food is that they are willing to eat, you know, if you can find ways, and I, I fully appreciate that this is not easy to do, I used to support a young man um, who only ate chips, only, only chips, he was 14, he had got to 14 it's amazing how much of a human body you can build just on chips and his mother would desperately try and lace his chips with she would crush up a vitamin tablet and she'd slide the chip open and put it inside and she'd show you the chips and go can you tell which one and we'd all look at it and go no I can't tell which one it is and he would eat the whole pile and leave that one chip you know if, if you can find the way around it yeah uh, some of the um Some of the new nutritional drinks, like Huel, where it's um, everything in a drink, it's a very, I'm I'm sort of doing bad advertising for you all, aren't I? It's a very bland thing, so it might be that that's an accessible option. Yeah, and then you build it up from there. And I am somebody who only ate beige as a child, and my um, first step into eating vegetables (laughs) came through eating crisps. So I was willing to eat crisps. And this is another sort of autism take on it. The reason that I was willing to eat crisps is because the crisps are the same every time you open the packet. My mum's spaghetti bolognese is fairly similar every time she makes it, but it's not the same. Crisps are the same every time you open the packet. So I know what I'm going to get. I feel confident in these things. And I used to consider... (laughs) up until far too old at 19 I considered two different flavors as long as it's different flavors it counts as a meal so if you've got a packet of like roast beef flavored crisps and pickled onions that's meat and vegetables and your carp, isn't it that's fine <laughs> um, I, got, I got so that I was having that as a meal and then I thought well I like pickled onion crisps I wonder if I would like pickled onions and pickled onion crisps was my gateway into <laughs> it's like drug taking. Wow. It's my like slip slope into pickled onions. And that's another little quirk in that quite often when people are worried about food, we try them on very bland stuff. And for me, it was always easier to do pickled onions, heavily salted things, things that pack a real punch mm-hmm. more accessible. So it's not always the sort of start point that you think. Wow. Just one thing I just want to touch on before we move off the food thing is also
3: it's one thing that we are fully in control of, so I am fully in control of what I'm therefore putting in my mouth and eating and there's a lot of anxiety from you know professionals and parents at lunch times, especially you know in school, and they're told oh they didn't eat anything when they're at school today and It can be, you know, their day has been so mixed with them being able to support themselves, regulate themselves through, you know, the changes of the classroom or the environment or the activity or the fact they woke up late or whatever it might be. By the time it gets to lunchtime, actually, I just need a bit of me time, essentially. I just need a bit of time where I can feel in control. It might be, no, I'm not going to eat anything. I don't want to even eat the food that I've brought along with me or it might be yes I'm always going to eat my walker's crisps or I have someone I used to support that would only eat chins sausage rolls and you know they very quickly stopped selling them in lots of supermarkets um and so it's it's about helping parents to also know actually it is one thing that your child is fully in control of and you could see that as a positive as well as the negative that they might be currently seeing of well they're eating such a limited diet. Actually they could be using that food time to also be regulating, to also be helping them to, to essentially calm themselves down. And that binary
2: reporting of it, did they eat yes or no, is is makes it very all or nothing. If you can see it as those little stepping stones. And we're very used to seeing gradual improvement in other areas. So if you have smelt two different food smells, if you've touched two different food textures, if you've heard three different sounds of eating, you are on a little journey, little steps towards being able to cope with all of those things at once. And if you're not going to ever be able to cope with the noise and with the stuff, then you're looking at um, substitute things. So if I can't cope with hearing this noise, Maybe I need to listen to really loud music whilst I'm eating my dinner. If I can't cope with the smell of my food, maybe I can hold my nose as I eat my food. One of the very common ones that we see is people only eating beige. And I always think that's just a very easy way of taking out some of the sensory input from your dinner, isn't it? If you want a, like a lower stimulating meal, I'll just go with one color. That's That solves the problem of looking at my food. Now let's get on with dealing with the other issues.
0: So just because we've only got a couple more minutes left, if you wouldn't mind just giving some general ideas or tips of advice in this, given the situation that we're in, uh, perhaps if we want to start with uh, Becky.
3: My kind of go-to is to really try and get some type of physical input every day. Um, if you can get out of the house and go for a walk or go for a stomp, that's great. If you can't, if you've got a garden, Stomp around your garden, dig in your garden, do something where you can use your joints and and your muscles, and getting that physical input. If you're in your home, then you know things like stretching. If you're able to do, so, it doesn't have to be yoga, it doesn't have to be you know a, an official plan or anything, but something where you can take in some deep breaths, you can stretch your body, um, is just really, really going to help kind of all of our senses to essentially work together, and and you feel bit more grounded and i think joe's probably going to elaborate a bit more on that with maybe
2: a bit of a mental health side of things i'm going to guess i I was i was actually i was going i was thinking about making little sensory zones in your house so some people have talked about their children seeking out particular stimulation and other people I, i was wondering about the programs on repeat type of thing sometimes that's a way of Relaxing and winding down, and if you have a sort of continued stimulus that you know what it is, it takes less processing effort from you. So if you can sort of tune your senses to that stimulus, it's it's a rest, not a rest. It's like I'll I'll do this, and that's easy for me to do, and that's easier than dealing with all of this. But actually, making like little um dens under a table, throw a heavy blanket over a table, and have a little zone where it's less stimulating where there's less noise if there's a room in the house or if under the stairs can be appropriated for a little sensory getaway zone then that would be a nice thing to do there's also there's positives are coming out of this i've i know a lot of families with children on the spectrum um have been saying my child's a lot less stressed since they had to go to school all the time since they had the sort of one-to-one support of somebody who intuitively understand them um they're seeing progress is being made so there are um there are positives coming out of the horrible time as well if you can provide
3: some area for your child to be able to feel calm and feel relaxed that's ultimately what what you want to be able to be doing
0: so so finding strategies ultimately to prioritize their well-being and mental health
2: not just theirs yours too because you're the hub that keeps them going
0: definitely yeah yeah really good advice thank you um okay it's been fun i've learned a lot interception i didn't know about that i'm gonna go (laughs) and look that one up and yeah just i've really enjoyed it thank you so much Um, and i hope that the listeners find this really helpful i'm sure people will and yeah it's been fun thank you thanks very much and take care and stay safe and uh hope to speak to you again soon Thank thank you thank you
3: Bye.